When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. I know you're paying attention to global events as well as what's going on in our nation. War and increased conflict is bubbling up in more places. Countries are buying and hoarding massive amounts of gold. Why aren't you? It's time to pull the trigger with the Oxford Gold Group and buy gold and silver. Nobody can predict the future, but we can't put our head in the sand either. Call Oxford Gold Group right now and you may qualify for up to $10,000 in free precious metals. Call 833 833- 995 gold that's 833-995-GOLD, 833-995-G-O-L-D. Nowadays, 20 bucks barely gets you a burger and fries or maybe a quarter tank of gas. You know what it'll get you, though? For just $20 a month, you can get unlimited talk, text, and plenty of 5G data from my cell phone company, Pure Talk. Make the switch today and save an additional 50% off your first month. Choose a wireless company who shares our values. Go to puretalk.com slash clay to switch today so you can actually afford that burger and fries. That's puretalk.com slash clay. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Buck Sexton Show. I have Michael Tracy with me now. He is a journalist with really interesting opinions on foreign policy, a perspective you're going to want to hear uh, specifically on Ukraine, and he also has a great Substack, uh, Michael Tracy Substack. Go check it out. You can follow him on Twitter. Mr. Tracy, coming to us live uh, auf Deutschland. So I know you're over in Germany right now. Let me let me start there. Actually, what what's the feeling in Germany about the largest war in Europe in eighty years? Yeah. Well, first off, greetings. I would do a German greeting, but I'm just so pathetic at even adopting like basics of the linguistic context that I'm supposed to be in. And in part because, you know, coming to a this conference, this was the Munich Security Conference that just concluded in here in Munich where I am now. And like, so it's all these people flying in from all over the place. So there's not really an expectation that you have to acclimate it all to the local customs. So nobody really expects that you're going to speak German and they probably wouldn't anyway, frankly, but it was even less of a burden to do so this time for my, for this trip, um, which is kind of embarrassing because I've, now I feel like an arrogant American. But. When we have more time, I'll tell you when I went to a Swedish counterterrorism conference and ended up partying late night at a nightclub with uh, Danish, Swedish, and I think Finnish federal police. So, you know, fun things could happen in that part of the world. Okay, so how do they feel or what's the sort of tenor or what's the just general sense that you can pick up from the conference? Well, first of all, I should disclose that the whole system that this conference had set up for press was quite peculiar. And you'd almost get a sneaking suspicion that they didn't really particularly want the press to have full access to the conference so they could make inferences about what the tenor was. So 
just let me explain it to you real quick because this is amazing. And no journalist who I spoke to at this conference had ever seen or experienced anything like it or even heard of it. Um, so as best I can tell, it's like an unprecedented thing, at least for this particular conference. And maybe just, you know, conferences of this sort writ large with this being, you know, a preeminent security conference for the, you know, basically, you know, the rules-based international order. So you have to obviously sign up ahead of time to get a press credential, which is standard. But once you arrive and are issued the press credential, you can't just then waltz in to the venue as you might anticipate, right? You have to go to a press sort of monitor or a selection of staff who have this booth or this room set up. And in order to get into the main venue, which is a hotel right in the center of like the old city of Munich, in order to get into the hotel, you then you have to declare a specific purpose or a specific destination or a specific task for why you're entering the hotel, number one. And then number two, you also have to be escorted the entire time. They actually call it an escort system that you're in the hotel by one of these like 20 year old German guys who they have lined up ready to accompany journalists as like a chaperone or a babysitter. And, you know, you could try to lose them. I've heard of instances where like journalists were able to sneak away and like, you know, hide in the bathroom or something to have a bit of free access. Um, but, you know, they were pretty, you know, uh, insistent on ma making sure that you never left their site. And it was very odd, um, definitely not the embodiment of press freedom that you would expect based on the rhetoric of these people, where they're always talking about how we have to stand up for liberal values and defend the rules-based international order because we cherish principles like, you know, freedom of the press, whereas these authoritarian countries, they crack down on the press, which, you know, is true in certain respects, but that tends to kind of obscure how, you know, also the high-minded liberal order countries or entities uh, can engage in a bit of chicanery themselves in that respect. Um, but that's just a little bit of a sort of uh, ephemera if people are Curious. Right. Um, so, so how do, freaked out I, you, are the you Germans do, do about the giant? Some good access. How freaked right. out are the Germans about the war in Ukraine right now? Or rather, what's the opinion of the Germans about the war in Ukraine? Well, so there is a new or new-ish um, defense minister who came into office in January. His name is uh, Pistorius, and he entered that position right around the time when there was that whole hubbub about whether Germany would send these Leopard tanks to Ukraine. And then there had to be a deal struck between the Biden administration and German Chancellor Scholz for the U.S. to at least pledge in theory to send M1 Abrams battle tanks, whereas in the meantime, so, to, so as to enable in the meantime, Germany to send these Leopard tanks. Um, and, you know, just going based on the rhetoric of the, of the new defense minister and also the foreign minister, which is a woman who's from the Green Party, um, Babak, they're getting almost very conspicuously strident in their rhetoric because you would expect 
in ordinary circumstances, Germany to be among the more resistant countries in one of these like transatlantic coalitions. So it would be the US, the UK, uh, you know, maybe the Baltic states and Poland and so forth, at least in the context of Ukraine, being mo most strident and most aggressive in pushing certain measures that they would like to take in terms of the conflict with Russia, whereas Germany and, you know, to some extent, France would be more wary, right, given for a variety of historical reasons. Also, you know, Italy and so forth would be in that category. But what's notable now, and this is sort of a break with precedent or a break with what had been the more conventional expectation is the rhetoric is hardening even with the German officials. Like Pistorius, the defense minister, gave a speech or declared at one of his appearances at this conference that uh, Ukraine must win. He, he gave like a maximalist declaration as to what must happen militarily in the war for victory to be achieved, be, which is beyond the kind of declarations that you would have gotten even maybe just six months ago from the German government. Um, and in terms of the woman who's the foreign minister, Babak, she's been one of the most hardcore advocates of accelerating the kind of interventionist policy in Ukraine from the outset, which is ironic because she's a member of the ruling coalition as a Green Party uh, member. So the Green Party is one faction within the ruling coalition of Scholz, right? And so they have Green Party members that get appointed to high positions of state, such as foreign minister. And she's been agitating for months and months and months for Scholz to be more assertive and more you know, antagonistic toward Russia, essentially. And why is that ironic? Well, first of all, the Green Party is kind of what, have, what most people probably would have thought before a year ago, the dovish party, right? Like the peacenik, crunchy party where you know, they'd rather like strum an acoustic guitar and sing Kumbaya than do anything even related whatsoever to the military. Um, but they're among the most strident now. And wait, why Mala, do you think that is? Uh, and if you look at their wait, 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 why is that? Well, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, why is it? Yeah, it's a good question. And it also relates to why the Democratic Party is so unified on this. That was my next question. There's a bit more <laughs> dissension in among the Republicans, even though they're like there's definitely majority support for the policy, yeah. but there's a little bit more dissension, right? Um yeah, because I think it has to do with this with the ideological contours of the war that have been imparted onto it, or they look at the conflict, meaning just the generic liberal kind of mainline opinion, especially within elite circles, they look at the conflict in Ukraine and they heighten like the cosmic significance of it to the point where they're imbuing it with these dimensions of some sort of, you know, apocalyptic, battle between authoritarianism and democracy or fascism and liberalism or one of these like grand ideological crusades, right? That's why they're always invoking World War II. That's why World War II now more than at any point that I've been alive anyway, is be the most potent analogy in kind of conferring moral salience um, yeah, this is a good versus evil for, conflict is the basics of it. This is this exactly. is the the good guy, the bad guy, the cowboy in the white hat, the cowboy in the black hat. Putin is Hitler. Right? That's that's how this is lined up. Yeah. And 
they also then can relate that to their domestic political foes, right? Because, you know, in the U.S., I don't have to tell you, it's not just a, it's not just the determination to stop uh, Putin that's informing the fury with which a lot of Democrats approach this issue. It's that it also they they also view it as connecting or you know, intersecting with their domestic struggle against insurrectionists and fascists and well, you know white nationalists and so forth because Trump was seen as this colluder of Putin's, right? And so Putin was depicted um, starting in 2016, really, and Hillary, Hillary Clinton, believe it or not, initiated this, or I don't know why you wouldn't believe it. I'm sure you would. She sort of initiated this conception of Putin that was sort of new circa 2016, that he wasn't just this, you know, a revanchist Russian former KGB agent who we had to be suspicious of, right? He was also this like exporter of right-wing authoritarianism and um, trying to undermine liberal democracy by subverting the rules-based international yeah, order through to, to these ideological interventions. To, to Democrats, yeah. there is a Putin-Trump axis of evil, if you will. I mean, this is what this is what right. they've created over the years of the Trump, uh, over, over the Trump presidency, and now it's extended. And I, I do remember with some of the uh, not just hyperbole, but the outright fabrications from the Trump uh, from the Trump era about Russia and Putin specifically. Some people, and I believe you were among them, uh, if I remember from your Twitter, were warning, hey, maybe just creating Russia as this um, almost cartoonishly evil country that is trying to destroy America from within and, and with fate, whether it's via Facebook or democracy, maybe this will have long-term foreign policy implications. I think we're actually already seeing some of those foreign policy implications right now. And I, yep. and I want to return to that in, in a second. And also the, the notion of this doesn't stop till Russia loses. What does that actually look like? But I want to take a moment for our sponsor here, because if you're a T-Mobile subscriber, they're investigating a data breach that exposed a sensitive personal information of 37 million customers. Right after the new year, cyber hackers grabbed data without notice. Could include customer names, emails, billing addresses, and phone numbers. If exploited, cyber criminals can use this information to commit online identity theft. If your own info is involved, how will you know about this? That's why you need LifeLock. LifeLock's online identity theft protection includes monitoring the web 24-7 for irregular activities and new account openings in your name. If they see unusual activity, they'll give you an alert. And if you happen to become a victim of identity theft, they will have a dedicated U.S.-based LifeLock restoration specialist assigned to you to fix it. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But it is easy to help protect yourself with LifeLock. I've relied on them for years. I've been a customer for many years now. Join now. Save up to 25% off your first year with LifeLock when you go to LifeLock.com. And use promo code BUCK. That's 25% off with promo code BUCK at lifelock.com. Or just call this number, 1-800-LIFELOCK. That's 1-800-LIFELOCK. All right, Michael, back, back to this. Uh, I, I, a few things. Um, I feel like we're being told a lot of contrary, because I, I really want to drill down into the what the strategy is here. Before we move on to that, can I make a quick, uh, can I I make a quick point about the ideological dimensions that I wanted to make and then we'll move on to the other stuff before I forget. I I think it's like scene setting. Sorry to interrupt, but no, man, um, in terms of, yeah, free flowing, (laughs) go for it, go for it. What do you got? Usually I'm just free flowing nonsense out of my mouth and people have to tell me to stop every so often. Otherwise I'll just ramble for hours on on end. Um, In terms of the ideological dimension, right? I think 
the whole the, the reason why liberals are and even leftists to some degree, like you would associate with the Green Party, have been so enlivened by this conflict is because it fits so perf- perfectly into their pre-existing sort of ideological warfare that they were already waging, even if there had been no invasion last February, right? But that's not the full story, right? That's just one component as to why the consensus around this issue is so intractable. You also have other factions of the ideological consensus as represented, for example, by Poland or the government of Poland, where you have a socially conservative party in power, the Law and Justice Party, rather rather conservative country overall, at least relative to the rest of Europe. And they're among the most vehement if not the most vehement in terms of supporting the more and more aggressive measures in Ukraine and being really beating the drum harder and harder. I mean, that's where Biden is right now, right? Where he just gave a speech. Um, so that, that I think that fervor that Poland exhibits kind of comes from a different ideological angle. But the, again, the reason why the consensus is so potent is because you have like different interlocking ideological schools of thought that can become equally sort of uh, vigorous in their support for this particular cause. So you asked me just to answer quickly, what is like the tenor at this security conference? Because obviously I was able to do stuff and talk to people and whatever, notwithstanding the ridiculous press restrictions. Um, I, I've ju- I would just summarize it as it's like an ideology overload. Like it's people overdosing on these ideological intoxicants that they've been hopped up on for a year from whatever particular direction where to the point where they almost can't be reasoned with in many respects. Um, And they're just full steam ahead toward a particular end goal that they can't quite articulate. I have theories as to what the end goal actually is. Maybe we'll get to it. Um, But yeah, that's just basically how I would answer it. It's just this really uh, strong to say to to put it mildly fervor that has overtaken this like western so-called security establishment such that they're really radicalizing rapidly in a whole variety of areas even ones that are just tangentially related to ukraine like they essentially institutionally endorse regime change in iran as well at this conference and then there's this whole china issue that is kind of you know, trending in the same direction. So, so it's, um, yeah. No, no, it's fine. So, so I, I want you to, to, to tackle this for me. Um, you have, on the one hand, you know, Wall Street Journal recently editorial said, not only should we give them, meaning Ukraine, another 90 billion or whatever, whatever they need, we should just send the F-16s now because why wait? Because we're just, this whole incremental game, what's the point? And and on the one hand, you have them saying effectively this national security apparatus that Western national security apparatus that the U.S. is, is leading and obviously NATO's as the other big component of it saying or making it seem at least like there's really no real risk here of anything getting re- going really bad for us. And yet on the other side, you have Zelensky saying if China support if China does for for Russia what we are doing for Ukraine and even a fraction of what we're doing for Ukraine, Zelensky said that will start World War Three. Well, how is one in an escalation to World War Three and the other has no risk of anything bad happening? That's what that's what I'm wondering how they can make sense of this for me. Right. 
I don't know exactly what Zelensky meant by that because he could have meant it in a sort of more uh, superficial sense in that if China did become a bona fide co-belligerent in the sense that it was furnishing Russia with armaments that it would use in Ukraine, it would sort of just expand the geographical remit of the conflict to the point where you could say it's now a global conflict. Is that what he meant by World War III? Or does he say that, or is he suggesting that there's going to be some like, you know, Pacific theater opened up in the war and it's going to be something more recognizable as what But even either of one of those would be, a, would be escalation, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It, it's escalatory exactly, yeah. is the point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think there's a conventional wisdom now that's congealed around the idea of escalation or whether there's risk in kind of ramping up these weapons provisions and going further and further with the tactics employed. Remember, it's not just the weapons. People don't, I think, fully appreciate this or appreciate this enough. It's not just that the U.S. is dispatching these, this endless supply of weaponry in an unprecedented, like, you know, arms funneling operation that as soon as March of last year dwarfed the most recent precedent, which had been under Harry Truman in terms of an armed supply operation in Europe. Um, now it's like, I guess, you know, it just has no precedent at all, really, that we can reasonably sort of invoke to kind of contextualize what this mission is. But it's not just the weapons themselves. It's this, it's the operational coordination of the warfare itself that the U.S. is first and foremost, undertaking in Ukraine. Remember when Ukraine launched its counteroffensives last August and September, right, where they, that were more successful than maybe people thought, and they took back a fair amount of land around, you know, uh, uh, Kharkiv and then later Kherson. It was reported in the New York Times and elsewhere shortly thereafter that the U.S. generals literally were involved in the process of drawing up the war plans themselves, right? So it wasn't just we send Ukraine a couple of javelin missiles and hope for the best, you know, and, you know, wish them good luck in coming up with tactical um, plans. No, the U.S. is intimately involved in creating and formulating and then executing those tactical tactical plans. because well, And some of the, some of the systems yeah, we're yeah. giving them also require, require, U.S. Yep. training and, and active monitoring and assistance. So some of these weapons, you hand someone an AK and say, go shoot the enemy. That's one thing. You give them a Patriot missile battery. There has to be U.S. training and U.S. support for that to actually function. Right. Right. I mean, one of the reasons that the Biden administration had cited as to why they were not going to send those Patriot batteries that he announced in December but when they were asked about this, meaning when Pentagon officials were asked about this, you know, last March or so, would the U.S. entertain the idea of sending Patriot batteries to Ukraine? It was dismissed as just a non-starter because to operate those Patriot batteries, these Pentagon officials said, would require U.S. forces on the ground. And we don't want U.S. forces on the ground. That's what Biden says is the red line that the United States is not going to cross policy-wise. And then sure enough, you know, like nine months later, <laughs> the Patriot batteries are deployed. Now, who knows who's going to be operating those? I mean, do I doubt that Ukrainian soldiers uh, can garner the 
knowledge necessary to at least in part operate the missiles? No, I don't necessarily doubt that, but I don't know for sure. You and I, and nobody knows what the actual operational arrangement will be in the management right. and uh, operate and, and, and uh, execution of those. Well, I, I do know that it would have to be when they're, just, once they're set up from my previous life, I mean, a Patriot system, someone has to train them. I and mean, to your point, they could learn how to do it themselves, but there has to be right. active assistance in that phase of, of getting them up to speed so they can operate what is a complicated and very expensive weapon system. Is, is it your perception? I, I, I feel like the, the biggest, um, the biggest debate right now, or maybe maybe the center of, of the problem is absent U.S. troops in Ukraine, I think the perception of the national security apparatus is Putin won't do anything to us or to escalate unless we actually send in troops. Therefore, why not send F-16s, Abrams, like the whole, all of it, just go with all of it. Are they right? You know, I think that that logic is actually coherent, meaning I wouldn't endorse that logic necessarily. But if you do believe, say, that it is true that Putin will not escalate short of some sort of more overt, unambiguous, direct U.S. military intervention, then they have a point when they're saying it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to deploy these different weapon systems so incrementally and haltingly, right? Because you're saying that that's all under the escalation threshold. So why not just do it all at once rather than, yeah, uh, you know, uh, dither for, for months. Now, I don't think that's necessarily an accurate assessment, but if that is your assessment, then at least it's internally coherent to make that argument. But my, my question um, to you is, do you yeah. think that's an accurate assessment? Well, I, I don't think there's really a basis to believe it's accurate. Here, here's the conventional wisdom that seems to have emerged around this question of escalation and so-called red lines, which I hate because it's a cliche, and I guess I just hate all cliches, but this one in particular because it like obscures the gravity of the subject matter in a lot of ways. They think that because there's this you know, conventional wisdom now among people who always wanted to escalate anyway. So they were going to try to like fashion whatever arguments they could to justify that. But those people now have like settled on this sort of circumstantial argument or this argument based on what's happened so far in the conflict where they're saying, look, you know, back in the fall, there was that period in October where Putin seemed to allude to the idea of potentially using the Russian nuclear arsenal for some sort of reprisal. He didn't make a direct threat, but you know, there's a clear allusion to it. Um, it was in actually the speech that he gave on September 21st when he announced the annexation of those four new oblasts, right? And um, so then, you know, Russia annexes the oblasts. They have these so-called referenda, which I don't think necessarily would hold up to scrutiny if you wanted to sort of decipher what it means to have a free and fair election. They're under military occupation. That's sort of a separate issue. But so then you know, Russia then formally declares that those four oblasts are part of Russia, right? And they also assert that the Russian nuclear arsenal can be used in the event that parts of Russia are existentially threatened. Now you have parts of Russia that are in a hot war zone. So theoretically, based on what is understood to be their 
nuclear doctrine, although who knows what the actual nuclear doctrine is. I mean, people just kind of pontificate. Somehow, there are more people in, in the United States, like on CNN, who are experts on the Russian nuclear doctrine and the American doctrine. I don't know how that came about. Um, yeah, but it, it is true that those territories were incorporated into Russia, and you could make like a theoretical argument, if you're Russia, that the nuclear, nuclear use is warranted to defend those oblasts. They think that meaning these national security types and whoever would be of the sort that would populate like a Munich security conference, they've convinced themselves that because, or at least they're claiming to be convinced, that because uh, Putin's red line was crossed in that the United States didn't back off from like Zaporizhia, um, Oblast and whatever, uh, when he annexed them and made them part of Russia, that that means his whatever red lines he suggests that he has or that may have postulated that he has, they're, they're not really there and it's just all a bluff. Um, and so that gives us license, these people say to themselves, just press on even more aggressively forward because we, we know that Putin really is all talk. Now, I think that makes no sense um, because Putin not doing a nuclear reprisal just because one so-called red line wasn't crossed doesn't mean that he wouldn't do it for an additional one. Like one doesn't, that one thing doesn't lead to the other there in the logical construction. It's just like an assumption or a conjecture. Um, and second, you don't even know, I mean, these people don't even know what a red line is. I mean, they use that term because Obama said it once at a press conference in 2012 regarding Syria. And then it just became this like constantly invoked cliche that really has no tangible content to it other than what people are um, speculating might be like the point of no return for a certain world leader well, in, in a, like military and national security analysis circles. It, it is used all the time. And it, when they talk about war, war gaming, which is another thing, by the way, yeah. that doesn't I, I've, I've partaken in war games in my past life. I've seen and uh, the problem with war games is it's not a game, and so you have no idea how the war is actually going to go. Uh, it gives you, at best, a very rough approximation of how conventional force-on-force force would react if the following uh, dependent variables are all true. Um, th that all said, on even just the red lines issue, the notion that there is a a an axiomatic or that there's a, a dogmatic and uh, immediate response that you would get from an action independent of everything everything else going on i think that is it is a problematic way of thinking about it right i mean they, they could say well red line is if someone goes to take the capital city or something well i mean certain red lines are so obvious you don't need to say them and others i think would be more situational which brings us back into ukraine and and what putin is willing to do here um in order to see this thing through which i think by the way is he'll see it through with whatever he can however he can I, I wanted to ask you. And also, I, I, go, go ahead. I'm sorry, I was just going to make a quick, just a quick point on that. And it, the certainty that these people have, meaning like the conventional NATSEC community, who I think are probably the one demographic on earth that I can most confidently say is just full of crap, um, almost 24-7 and almost universally, with so few exceptions that like they don't even really factor into whether you can just declare them universally full of crap. Um, one thing that they don't factor into this whole newfound certainty that they have about Putin's fecklessness or how he's really just, you know, um, 
feigning when he suggests that there could be red lines is we have plentiful evidence that there have been escalatory tit-for-tat exchanges between the United States and Russia that have heightened the intensity of the conflict, right? And here, let's, and just to give one example, and when I say the U.S. and Russia, you know, I'm including Ukraine within the U.S. side of that dichotomy because Ukraine only exists as a state right now because of the sponsorship of U.S. Um, and not not even just the military portion of the Ukrainian state either, the civil state as well. Like USAID is just paying all the state pensions and benefits of state employees in Ukraine, but that's a you know, side issue. Um, but when Ukraine, remember, did that um, truck bombing attack on the Kerch Bridge in Crimea in October, right. um, which was odd because, or odd from the standpoint of it had certain kind of classical markers of what we've come to believe would constitute a terrorist attack, but of course it wasn't called that at all in Western media because that would impugn Ukraine and can't do that because, you know, the high principle always is to be a partisan for one of the warring parties rather than be, you know, truthful about stuff. It tends to be the case with warfare, at least as I have observed it. Um, when that happened, which is obviously a fairly um, adventurous or audacious act on the Ukraine special forces part, uh, given the kind of centrality of Crimea to like what seems to be Putin's sort of conception of his sort of uh, historical epoch as leader of Russia. And that bridge is one that he personally oversaw the construction of uh, and opened it relatively recently. Once that happened, Russia did escalate in turn. So that was an escalation in the sense that it like opened up sort of a new sphere of warfare and a new newly audacious sort of tactic of warfare and then russia did the same in that it reciprocally then began what became a you know months-long campaign of bombing civilian infrastructure in ukraine the electrical grids and whatever it was not even on uh, not even ambiguous that that was portrayed by russia as in, at least in part retaliation for the truck bombing on the bridge, right? So when people in these national security cliques say that, oh, the red lines are all a bluff, we've, you know, Putin has uh, belied with his actions any idea that we should be concerned about this in terms of escalatory potential, what they, I think, willfully, or I think they're, or either, either they willfully ignore it or they're so ideologically intoxicated that they can't bring themselves to even be able to perceive it anymore. What they're not mentioning is that there is a huge array of evidence that there is this kind of um, synerg syner uh, synergetic escalatory dynamic in Ukraine, where we do we we can anticipate that Russia will escalate, given escalatory behavior that you know U.S. Uh, the U.S. does or that uh, Ukraine does in tandem with the U.S. So that dynamic exists. It's just a point of like how high does the escalatory ladder reach to the point where it becomes something truly cataclysmic such as nuclear use. I want to come back to the very important, I would argue central question of, is this all from the U.S. perspective, 
uh, and what the Biden administration has done to this point, a massive blunder. But hold that for a second. I want to come back to it. I want to talk about the Tunnel of the Towers Foundation for a second. Born from the tragedy of 9-11, the Tunnel of the Towers Foundation has been honoring America's heroes ever since. The foundation honors fallen and severely injured heroes and their families with mortgage-free homes. This year alone, hundreds of gold star and fallen first responder families with young children and our nation's most severely injured veterans and first responders are receiving homes. More than 500 homeless veterans received housing and services last year. More than 1,500 are receiving houses and services this year. This coming Memorial Day, all the brave men and women lost since 9-11 in the War on Terror are having their names read aloud in a Tunnel to Towers ceremony in our nation's capital. Through the Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Institute, the foundation is educating kids in kindergarten through 12th grade about our nation's darkest day. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good. Please help America to never forget its greatest heroes. Join me in donating $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org, T2T.org. All right, Mr. Michael Tracy, um, is this a massive blunder in the making, the U.S. role in the Ukraine-Russia war, or is this something that can drag on and it will just be another budget item that some people complain about, but eventually no real consequences? Well, I guess it, I guess it depends on what the desired outcome is or what objective is being pursued, because... Given the objective that was articulated around when the war started, or at least in the first several months, you could make an argument that far from being a blunder, it's actually been a grand success in that uh, when Lloyd Austin and Antony Blinken first made their triumphant entrance into Ukraine after the war started in April, Austin made a comment that became fairly well known and widely remarked upon where he said that one of the chief aims of U.S. policy in Ukraine was not merely to enable Ukraine to achieve victory on the battlefield, but to, quote, weaken Russia. Um, And unless you think the Secretary of Defense is just off his rocker and freelancing without any sort of authorization or without commenting on like a policy ambition that really does exist. I think it was fair at the time and still fair now to believe him when he says that is a goal of U.S. policy, right? And there was also a column um, that was published by Neil Ferguson in Bloomberg in March of last year, where he claimed to have overheard a Biden administration official blabbing at some function where the official blurted out, that the whole point of this Ukraine interventionist policy was to, quote, bleed Russia dry, right? Which then kind of gives a little bit more explanatory power to why certain decisions have gone the way they have, right? So we talked before about the people who are complaining about the laxity of the deployment of different weapon systems, right? They want it done faster and they don't want any sort of more hindrances in terms of which styles of weapons can be sent. Well, if your whole object is to just bleed Russia dry, then maybe your idea would be to just prolong the conflict and escalate it incrementally and gradually rather than dumping everything into the war zone at once, because the idea is just to have Russia burn its resources um, and eventually weaken it to the point that something can be done in terms of potentially fostering regime change or some other resolution. Um, So, yeah, 
But in terms of a blunder from a more, I guess, substantive perspective, so kind of doing away with like whatever framework the actual advocates of the intervention have adopted for themselves. Yeah, like you know, one thing that America, I always find that that framework. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Or like, what is what will reduce the incidence of just mass death and suffering and destruction? I always get a kick out of these people who have been hardcore champions of U.S. interventionist foreign policy. Um, because in Ukraine, they've gotten their way. I mean, they always erect these uh, boogeymen of isolationists as though everybody's kind of, you know, uh, chomping at the bit. These isolationists are all chomping at the bit to uh, just undercut U.S. policy because they're, they're so sinister and they have such outsized influence. Whereas, I mean, there's no isolationist. <laughs> Isolationism is not the policy that the U.S. is following in Ukraine right now, certainly. The interventionists have got their way. I mean, there's a massive, sprawling, multidimensional intervention as of as we speak in Ukraine, and it's been going on for a year, and it's escalating pretty much by the week. Um, it's, but they'll they'll sort of posture as having the moral high ground, right? So the people who maybe are skeptical of interventionist U.S. foreign policy, they're morally blighted. They're sinister. They have ulterior motives. Maybe they're paid by Russia, whatever. Um, or doing propaganda or spreading disinformation, whereas the people who are champions of this policy, they have the moral high ground, they understand the stakes, they're like humanitarians of some kind. Meanwhile, look at the fruits of the policy that they've been promoting for the past year. The German intelligence services, at least as reported by Der Spiegel a few weeks ago, said that there are hundreds uh, of bodies, hundreds of dead Ukrainian soldiers piling up every day in the war as of at least late January. And then also a heck of a lot of Russian casualties, apparently, although we don't know the precise figures. Let's just, I don't know, give a ballpark estimate of, I don't know, 600, 700. If, if there's at least 100 a day, right, just on the Ukraine side, then like a, 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 a lower tier estimate would be like 1,000 killed in action a, a week, right? Something like that. You have the... You have the moral standing, or you uh, you presume yourself to have the moral standing to pontificate about the humanitarian virtue that you embody by your advocacy of this interventionist position, when the results of it are a thousand, like twenty-year-olds blown to bits every week. I, I don't really. I'm not sure that you have the really the the right to be pontificating as. Um, can, can, I, can I just jump are. in really yeah. quickly here? Um, because if it were either a, a Democrat interventionist or there are, as you point out at the beginning of our discussion, the right, there's more dissent about this issue than on the left. I, I don't I do not see any Democrat pundits of any platform or standing a considerable platform um, who are opposed to what's going on in Ukraine. I do see, you know, Tucker Carlson, for example, very prominently is a skeptic of uh, what's going on with U.S. intervention in Ukraine. But the people that aren't yeah. skeptics, what they would say to you, Michael, is, OK, yeah, there's a lot of casualties going on. But if we weren't giving the Ukrainians to fight, it would be an invasion by Putin with genocide and tyranny and even more casualties. By the way, I don't subscribe to this theory. I'm just saying, what do you what what, what is your response to what would clearly be uh, their attack at, at that point of view? Well, right. They have to immediately resort to conjuring up one of these counterfactual scenarios and make everybody 
really intimidated by this hypothetical prospect of, you know, mass genocide or, you know, who doing a blitzkrieg throughout the rest of East of, of Europe or one of these other more, you know, extreme scenarios um, that they conveniently don't have to ever prove are true because they're intentionally bringing up a counterfactual that can't be proven or disproven. Um, whereas I have the luxury of looking at the facts on the ground and what has actually been done and what is in the observable record and what can be empirically verified. And that's the fruits of the policy that they've promoted. I mean, they're, they're the ones who have been chanting stand with Ukraine for a year, waving flags, demanding escalations in weapons provision um, and just being general advocates of the overall sort of policy framework that's been employed in Ukraine by the U.S., and yet somehow the mass death and destruction and economic turmoil and, um, you know, basically just total obliteration of Ukraine's state capacity and, um, and so on, none of that they bear any responsibility for um, because they'll claim, oh, what do you mean? It's all just Russia. Now, of course, Russia is a belligerent in the war. They're fighting the war. They're responsible for the warfare that they undertake, right? But this idea that the United States hasn't pursued a policy explicitly that was intended to facilitate the intensification of warfare, and now we see intensified warfare on the battlefield and the casualties associated with that, and there's no culpability at all or no responsibility that is borne by the United States for it. It's just a deflection. It's they are understandably um, resistant to being called to account for the ramifications of what they promoted because what they what those ramifications are, we can see with our own eyes. It's the immiseration of Ukraine and and with no end in sight. Well, so that's, that's I don't what know I, that I would be you. so. Uh, I, I don't know that I would be so smug if I were in their position to somehow act like you've been morally vindicated or tactically vindicated or vindicated in some other sense, given what seems like a rapidly um, expanding disaster. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you, but consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. The number one fantasy sports app in America is Prize Picks. It's the easiest and most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Five million members already active on Prize Picks. If you've not yet downloaded Prize Picks, do it today. 
Unlike other apps on prize picks, it's just you against the number. It's about the players and not the teams. You look for the sports you know best and that you follow the most. Then you make a single decision on each player projection, more or less. Every time you play, you pick two to six players and make that one decision. You can win up to 100 times your money on prize picks with as little as four picks. More player action on prize picks now than ever, and it's the best way to get action on sports in more than 30 states now. Prize picks also gives you injury insurance, so your picks stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. Download the free Prize Picks app and open your account. Use my name Clay for a first deposit match up to a hundred dollars. Download the Prize Picks app. Use promo code Clay, that's C L A Y, to get set up and get a deposit match up to a hundred dollars. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Why are people still on the fence about owning gold and silver? I just don't understand. Have we already forgotten about regional bank closures, inflation, global instability, and the potential for serious world conflicts? You can look to precious metals for various reasons. One, having tangible currency on hand as part of your bug-out plan. Two, diversifying your portfolio as a hedge against inflation. And three, historically, gold increases in value over time. You keep yourself informed about global events. You see the increase in conflicts around the globe. Countries are buying and hoarding massive amounts of gold. Why aren't you? It's time to pull the trigger with the Oxford Gold Group and buy gold and silver. Nobody can predict the future, but we can't put our head in the sand either. The people with Oxford Gold Group are real pros. They make owning gold and silver simple and easy to understand. Call Oxford Gold Group right now and you may qualify for up to $10,000 in free precious metals. Call 833-995-GOLD. That's 833-995-GOLD. One more time, 833-995-G-O-L-D. Where do you see it going? Because right now, it sounds like, it very much sounds like this because Biden has said it, we're in it until the end, whatever it takes, whatever it costs. That is the explicit policy of the Biden White House and and really of the of the uniparty, if there is such a thing. And in national security, there 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 really is, I think, almost more than anywhere else, a uniparty. Yeah. Um, that is the position. And Vladimir Putin is not backing off of this. I don't think anyone believes he's going to back off of this, uh, even if they have another hundred thousand casualties this year. So where do you see it going? Well, a lot of the fretting among, if you want to call it the uniparty, or at least you know, the uh, sort of mainline consensus of the national security operators who are the most sort of ardent enthusiasts for this gambit. The main fretting that they do, it seems, as regards the ultimate outcome of the war is they're concerned that, you know, Kevin McCarthy is all of a sudden going to become an anti-war activist and decide to cut off aid to Ukraine, which was always such a ridiculous concept. It was kind of manufactured as this midterm election talking point by, you know, Democrats and the media who wanted to like paint McCarthy and the Republicans as somehow stooges of Putin. And it wasn't actually in accordance with anything McCarthy had ever really said or espoused. He made one fleeting comment about how supposedly the Republicans don't want to give Ukraine a blank blank check anymore. But, you know, everybody pretty much agrees with that statement or at least says they do. Democrats and Republicans alike. I mean, Marco Rubio says, oh, of course, no, we don't want to give Ukraine a blank check, but we have to still send them tons of military equipment. So like everybody can just claim that they're not in favor of blank check. It didn't mean anything when McCarthy said it. 
I mean, he was actually criticizing Biden early on in the war starting last March or so for not being aggressive enough in sending, for example, or facilitating the transfer of those MiG jets early on that Poland wanted to deploy. And so uh, uh, McCarthy was a critic of Biden from a hawkish perspective on the war, as at least an earlier juncture, as has have been the core leadership of the Republican Party in both the House and Senate. Elise Stefanik, Steve Scalise, Kevin McCarthy, all hardcore Ukraine interventionist hawks. Now, maybe they sort of like modulate their rhetoric in certain contexts, given that they know there's a bit more consternation about that position within elements of the Republican coalition, but doesn't change the fundamental policy that they're still clear and on the record as in support of. Same within with the Senate, with you know Mitch McConnell, John Thune, Rick Scott, et cetera. McConnell was here, as you might know, at the Munich Security Conference with his blue and white striped tie saying that, look, what you should, and he was right about this, what McConnell said was, because of course, all these people who want to ask him questions at this event, they're all asking, like, what can you do to make sure that the, um, the, uh, the, you know, MAGA isolationist Republicans don't get their way and the House Republicans and Senate Republicans make sure that aid continues to flow uninhibited. He'll always, he'll, he'll say a variation of, or he started saying a variation of a line that I think is actually just true. Whether it's good or bad is another question. But he said it's true. He said, don't really fixate on the handful of sort of eccentric personalities, like especially in the house who get a lot of airtime or forget about like the social media chatter on this or the media commentary, you know, TV commentary. Look at who the Republicans actually have in positions of legislative power in the Congress. And he's right. The heads of the three main committees that would be overseeing the uh, drafting of any, any forthcoming Ukraine aid legislation are among the most ardent hawks in either party on the subject. Mike McCall, Mike Turner, uh, et cetera, on the, you know, the Foreign Relations Committee, the Armed Services Committee. Uh, the actual committee chairs, the people who would be exerting power over the formulation of this procedurally in the House, they're all even they're in that crowd that criticized Biden for not being hawkish enough. Okay, so um, in terms of where the whole conflict is going, I think that whole side of it, meaning people are always cautioning or pointing out the specter of somehow Republicans becoming an anti-war caucus and cutting off the provision of aid. I don't think that's a particularly realistic possibility, or I don't at least don't see much evidence that anybody should let that sort of dictate how they understand what the trajectory of the war is, because it seems like you know, there's every reason to believe it'll just kind of the status quo will continue in that respect. Where do I see it going? I mean, you know, I'm hesitant to answer that question in a speculative sense, because that always makes people look bad. Like we had, there's this talking point that goes around now where we're told everybody believed or People will say, and even like you know, the Polish president said it last night, introducing Biden in Warsaw and like Alexei Navalny, I saw saying it. Everybody says it. it's just like a matter of like just it's an article of faith. It's part of like the war mythology now that everybody believed somehow that Kiev would fall within three days. And they were all wrong because Ukraine showed how resourceful it is and how bold its fighters are and warded off the Russian menace heroically. And that's why we then have to have this indefinite commitment of perpetual 
warfare provision to Ukraine, right? So I, I think that whole narrative is a bit of a misnomer and it's like, you know, cleverly constructed war propaganda because everybody did not quote believe that. There was one briefing that Mark Milley gave in early February where he suggested that Russia could or may seize Kiev, uh, Kiev in one of several possible scenarios. And then that was just extrapolated into, oh, everyone believed that this was going to be happening with absolute certainty, which was, again, not the case. But you can see why Ukrainians or pro-Ukraine advocates would want to hype that as supposedly what happened, because it kind of gives their endeavor this like heightened uh, purpose and uh, is like this animating sort of force for their argumentation. Um, Here's what I can say is happening. I'd rather almost try to figure out what is happening than what may happen six months from now, because I don't freaking know. Um, so what is very unpredictable? Well, what is happening is <laughs> because you have this Western security establishment, so to say, and I hate even using the word West or Western in this context without scare quotes, because it's such like a ridiculous conceit. Oh, we're the West. What does that even mean? I mean, it's so sort of annoying um, and self-aggrandizing. Um, what is happening is you do see a hardening of the this, the ideological zeal of the core decision makers who are party to the development of the just policy orientation of these security and uh, uh, state apparatuses. Um, Biden being a chief example. I mean, I actually think people underrate the significance of Biden's sincerely felt ideological convictions on this. Like people think that Biden is just senile and, or his interest in Ukraine is all about how like he wanted Hunter to get like $60,000 a month from the Burisma board. That's like an ancillarily related dimension of Biden's relationship with Ukraine. But I am inclined really to take him at his word when he makes these incredibly zealous statements about how awesomely important he views the conflict to be. And it would be consistent with what his foreign policy views and what his emphasis has been at, in public life as a member of the Senate going back decades. And then as vice president, this is like right within his ballywick as something that he thinks is actually extraordinarily existentially civilizationally uh, important. You can pull up clips of him in the 90s, like being the person that Bill Clinton and then later in the 2000s, George W. Bush designated to usher through NATO expansion in the Senate. Um you know, so while he might not have been like a long time zealous, um, he, he might not have been like a, have been a long time ideologue with regard to like Afghanistan, right? Which is why he allowed for or you know ordered the withdrawal um, in two thousand twenty one. In, in terms of Europe and um, you know Soviet Union and slash Russia relations with the United States, this is something that he's actually you know been deeply, seemingly ideologically invested in for a long time. So I'll take him at his word on that, and that's actually all the more reason to presume that the commitment is going to be indefinite, um, or at least there's no reason to think that the current trajectory will change. And what is the current trajectory? It's these escalatory spirals that are tit for tat and have this synergistic sort of relationship with one another between the U.S. slash Ukraine and Russia that uh, although people have thought people claim that we, the red lines were never crossed and Putin was bluffing, right? As we were talking about before, we're at a point now. I mean, if I, if I told you a year and a half ago, or if you told me a year and a half ago, right, that the U S would be 
essentially, functionally, effectively in a hot war with Russia in that you have this incredibly intense operational involvement in the actual combat that the U.S. is engineering. You have the weapons provision, the diplomatic side of it, the economic um, subsidy and so forth. If you had told me that and gave, gave me some examples of like what this has manifested as, like for example, in December of last year, there was a drone strike 300 miles inside Russia okay, on a, an air base that housed part of Russia's strategic nuclear fleet. Ukraine did another audacious act and did a drone strike on that base. Now, that's the U.S. sponsoring Ukraine's ability to do that. Whatever direct operational role the U.S. might have had in that particular action is sort of beside the point. It's only because of the U.S. sponsorship that the Ukraine military can do anything at all right now. Um, if you had told me that that happened, right, or that the um, U.S. would be declaring through the words of the president that nuclear apocalypse remember biden said this in october yeah nuclear apocalypse is a greater threat than any time since the cuban missile crisis um or you had told me just a dozen or more other insane things that are that exemplify this conflict i mean even just a few weeks ago or two weeks ago or so the washington post reported that when the ukraine military fires any rocket attacks on any at any Russian target, that every single time or virtually every single time, the United States is a, is effectively firing the rocket in that it's providing such precise and granular real time intelligence that it's essentially a second party to the actual conduct of the strike through a base that the U.S. has on the periphery of Ukraine somewhere, somewhere in one of these other countries like Romania or, or, or Poland. I mean, that's, in, that's insane. That's like direct war with Russia, okay? So people don't, people, but people have been habituated or they've been acclimated to how jarring and insane that is over the last year because of the, the way that they've approached this issue policy-wise. I mean, the Biden administration, Congress, et cetera, they've done the, the escalations incrementally when the war first started, supposedly it was like this limited humanitarian aid mission with a couple of rifles and javelins, and that was it. Now we're furnishing Ukraine an entirely new military with F-16s potentially, or at least that we know now, you know, Abrams tanks yeah, and Patriot batteries and everything else. It's it like, it's not what it was sold as from the outset. Michael, we got to leave it there. Michael Tracy, everybody, check out his Substack. Michael, will have you back with more time to talk about this and other subjects too. Thanks for being here on the show, man. We appreciate you. All right. I enjoyed it. Thanks. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.